Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Pop Goes the World by Men Without Hats. Listen to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is Gene Yang. He has... I was actually kind of surprised 
putting the interview together and looking at the stack of books, uh, probably most known for American-born Chinese, as well as uh, you appeared in the past with Derek Art Kim for your collaboration, The Eternal Smile, um, Prime Baby, Gordon Yamamoto uh, and the King of the Geeks, Loyola Chin and the San Pellegrin Order, and last but not least, your latest release, uh, collaboration with the Notorious Tim Fam, uh, Level <laughs> Up. That's right, the Notorious Tim Fam. My, my arch enemy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Robin's arch enemy. I'm totally trying to start a, start a grudge war. And, uh, yeah, but he's totally stuff. into that, so you're playing right into his hands. Awesome. He did he a nice... <laughs> he did a nice sketch in my uh, sketchbook at Ape last year of me slapping him, so... Uh-oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you for taking the time with me today, Gene. Yeah, thanks for calling. It's uh, always swell to, to talk to you. I'm sad I didn't get to see you when you are in Vancouver that previous time back in... February, I think it was. Yes. You, you yeah. Got, you got beautiful to, you got, city. You yeah. live in a beautiful city. You got to experience a rare snowfall here. That was unusual. Yeah, just for me. Yeah, just for you. The skies opened. And <laughs> snow fell. Um. So I guess before I jump into your comics, I want to know a little bit about your background of um. Kind of young Gene, because I feel like it's always feeding into your work. Like that might be true. Yeah, a lot of cartoonists just can't get over their childhoods, right? I think so a that, lot of people for me. can't get over yeah, their childhoods. Yeah, that might be true, too. So, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm the son of uh, two immigrants. My dad was born in Taiwan and my mom in China, and they came to the United States for grad school, met in a, in a university library, fell in love, got married, and had me, and, and one other child, my, my younger brother. So... Um, I don't know. I think I think my my childhood was pretty typical. In a lot of ways, it was pretty typical of a geek growing up in the in the 80s. I was into those old school video games. I was really into comic books and cartoons on TV. I actually, when I was when I was really young, um, I wanted to be an animator all the way up through maybe fifth grade. That was my that was my goal was to become a Disney animator. When when I was in uh, in third grade, my teacher made us do these biography reports, so I did mine on Walt Disney, and after that I became obsessed with him and, and his company, you know, I, um, I bought this giant poster of Walt Disney, like his head, mm-hmm. and I stuck it in my, in my bedroom, um, I uh, checked out all the books from the library that I could find of him, I remember finding out his, his death date and really hoping that it was my birth date so that there might be a chance that I'd be his reincarnation. But <laughs> that was not the case. That did not work out for me. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's what, I mean, I, I always drew, and I grew up wanting to be an animator. And in fifth grade, um, I started getting into comics. Uh, I bought my first comic in fifth grade. I had this friend named Jeremy in fifth grade who was, had been collecting comics for years by that point, and he brought me to my first comic book store. And, and pretty soon after that, Jeremy and I started producing comics ourselves. You know, we, we did um, this superhero comic called Spade Hunter, where the main character was basically like Robin Hood. You know, he wore all green with a feather in his cap, but instead of a bow and arrow, he had this discus, like this discus of death that we could <laughs> throw at people's heads. 
and, and that was our character. So we, we made we made uh, Fade Hunter comics. We sold them at our school for fifty cents a piece. And and I guess you know I didn't know the term at the time, but I, we were basically producing a mini comic and selling them to our friends. And that's how my my comic book career got started. Now, um, how did your family feel about the comics? Were they supportive? Um, no, no. I mean, they they were not super happy about it. I remember my mom took me to a local comic book store, and it was not the most family friendly bookstore uh, at the time. You know, it was it was. Uh, I, I was in fifth grade. You know, it was just a few months after I'd gotten into it. And they just had a lot of these, I don't even remember what the title was, but it was basically like the sword and sorcery book where um, the women were all topless. So, you know, as a fifth grader, I didn't want to be all into it in front of my mom, but I kind of <laughs> thought it was, it was awesome. But I think she saw that cover, like she saw a cover of one of those books and she wouldn't let me go back <laughs> after that. You know, I think, I think she, she might have seen that comics at the time as maybe like porn for little kids or something. So she, she definitely wasn't super encouraging of it. And my dad um, didn't like comics, but for totally different reasons. He just couldn't see how you could make a career out of something like comics. You know, he wanted me to choose from doctor, lawyer, or engineer. So they weren't super, you know, uh, supportive of it. As I got older, um, they became more tolerant of it. You know, uh, uh, they, you know, I would bring home comics, and they they wouldn't say anything usually. Every now and then, <laughs> my dad would bring up the fact that, you know, oh, I read this article about how uh, reading comics is bad for your eyes because the lettering is too small, and he they, he would just make little snide comments like that every now and then. But nowadays, you know, nowadays they're they're happy, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. They don't, you... they don't give me any more grief about it. And you grew up in the Bay Area. I did. I did grow up in the Bay Area. Yeah, I grew up in a suburb of San Jose. I spent most of my childhood in a suburb of San Jose. No. That nowadays is like, you know, at the time when we moved into that suburb, we were just one of a handful of of uh, Chinese families in that neighborhood. I, I remember when, uh, like, the a few weeks before we started school, my mom actually went to my school and asked for the the names and the numbers of all of the other Chinese families in that neighborhood. And, and they actually gave it to her, and we, we, we did house calls after that. So nowadays, like, it'd be weird for you to do something like, like that, right? Especially, especially yeah. since that same community is, like, I don't know, 70, probably 60 or 70% Asian now. That's funny. So it's totally, totally different from, from when I was growing up. Um, so would you say that American-born Chinese is kind of indicative of your experience in some aspects? Growing up, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely fiction, but I I pulled from my own life experience when I was putting together that book. Definitely, I'm wondering about yeah. the catharsis of it. Like, do you was it a book you kind of felt that you needed to produce as just kind of releasing some personal experience? Yeah, I mean, it it definitely was cathartic, especially doing the Chinky character. I think there's something very very cathartic about drawing that character out. Um, you know, growing up as an Asian geek, you're never totally sure where your Asianness, like, like you know, the awkwardness you feel at mm -hmm. school. You're never totally sure how much of that comes from being 
geeky and how much of that comes from being Asian, you know? <laughs> so, um, so uh, I think um, in a lot of ways, maybe American Born Chinese was, was how I worked that out. I do remember, though, like, like part of the reason why I think at least some of the awkwardness I felt um, at school was, was from being Asian and not just because I was a geek. Mm-hmm. which I definitely was, was that I, I went to Chinese school every every Saturday, you know? And I just remember, especially in junior high and high school, when I got to Chinese school, I was almost, I, I felt different inside. You know, I was around all these other Chinese-American kids. And there, I had the guts to talk to girls that I thought were hot, you know, or, mm-hmm. or were good-looking. Whereas those same girls in the context of regular school, I just, I couldn't talk to them for some reason. So I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I definitely felt that, that some of that, some of that awkwardness came from at least how I saw myself, you know, and how I saw my own cultural heritage. It seems like it's resolving things for yourself. American more Chinese? Yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. I definitely, I, I think, I think that's true. One thing I was wondering about is how, because um, you're, uh, last time we talked, you talked about how you're Catholic Chinese, and so I'm wondering mm-hmm. um, how you use the uh, the use of the Chinese religious stuff to kind of work through that, or is that any kind of issue for you? The the religion? You mean? Yeah, just like talking about religion in there as part of the character's identity, but not part of your yeah. identity. Yeah, I think um, I think it's interesting. It's you know a hundred years ago, um, an an Asian person uh, converting to any form of Christianity, in a lot of ways, would have been seen as the traitor of his own people or of his own culture. But then, um, between then and now, just it's it's gotten the relationship between Western religion and Eastern culture has gotten much more complex. Mm-hmm. You know, in a in a lot of ways in America, especially um, Christian churches became the way in which Asian immigrants stayed in touch with their culture, and that was definitely true of the church that I grew up in. You know, we um, I, I grew up in a in a Chinese Catholic church, and we celebrated. Chinese New Year, and uh, and um, a lot of the the Catholic holidays had a definite Chinese bent to it. So during the Day of the Dead, um, which is a, a Catholic thing, we celebrated it in a way that was very evocative of um, Buddhist rituals. You know, there there was like incense and and um, and bowing and all sorts of and, and you know good food and all sorts of things like that. So, in a lot of ways, I think for me growing up, um, my church experience, even though it was within a Western religious tradition, definitely connected me to Eastern culture, you know, Chinese culture. What kind of feedback have you gotten from from folks with that book as far as, like, say, young Chinese men or young Asian um that have gone through that experience. Have you gotten feedback from folks? Yeah, I, I've I've gotten a lot of different feedback. I think for um, for 
Chinese or, or Asian Americans, especially Asian Americans around my age, a lot of them have come up to me and told me that the book really resonated with them. And then for people who are younger, for Asian Americans who are younger, I've I've gotten a more mixed bag of reactions. There are definitely um, Asian Americans who are younger, who especially if they're immigrants' kids, mm-hmm. who have come up and told me that they re- could really relate to what I was talking about in the book. But then there have also been a significant number of young Asian Americans who have come up and told me that they just they they thought the book was interesting, but they didn't feel like it spoke to them personally. It wasn't indicative of their experience. Mm-hmm. A lot of ways, I, I actually think that's a that's a very good thing, you know. Um, that that the fact that there is this new generation of Asian Americans that don't necessarily f- identify with the alienation that I talk about in the book. Um, it's interesting. Uh, when last time I had you on with Derek, and also I know you're really tight with Jason. Um, Shiga, and mm-hmm. I'm curious about that relationship with with race and how that kind of helps you guys with your own kind of creating comics and discussions. Yeah, we. I don't know if we talk, especially with Jason. I don't know if we talk about race that much. I kind of feel like Jason Shiga transcends race. <laughs> He's so <laughs> unique, you know. <laughs> He's so unique that he transcends race. Completely. God bless you, Jason. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know he's going to be I listening. Mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't know if we. Um, you know, like Derek and I will talk about race every now and then. Like we're we're both fans of um, the the Avatar cartoon, mm-hmm. not the not the Blue People movie, the Last the Airbender cartoon. Yeah, and, and I remember. Like when the when the whole casting thing came up, we had a whole bunch of conversations about how mad we were, <laughs> and, and that was probably the last time we had a long discussion about about race. But um, but usually, yeah, usually we don't we don't talk about race all that all that much. It is interesting though. You know, I, there was a an original. I had an original group of of cartoonist friends, and most of them were Asian for some reason. I I, I don't I didn't like actively go and seek out other Asian cartoonists to hang out with but it just kind of happened that way not I mean not all of us were definitely but most uh, most of that original group that I used to hang out with were well who were some of the cartoonists you were getting influenced from when you really started tapping into making your own comics yeah I I really feel very very lucky that um I I fell in with the the group of cartoonists that I did when mm-hmm. I, when I was starting my career. So Derek Kirk Kim was one of them, and um, Jesse Ham. Are you familiar with his work? Yeah. He lives up in Portland now, and he's part of um, Periscope. Yeah. So he was he was also also one of the guys that I hung out with a lot. He used to live in the Barrio. All of us used to live in the Barrio, and uh, and Jason Shiga and Derek. Uh, I'm sorry, I already said Derek Lark Pien. Okay. Yeah. Was another one, and and Jason Thompson. Um. Yeah, I think I think those were the like we used to meet um, every every week for the thing that we called art night, where we'd just get together and and draw and look at each other's stuff and talk about stories and bitch about the industry and that sort of thing, you know. Uh, and I feel like in a lot of ways that was my class. That was my classroom. That's where I really learned how to look at my own comics critically. That's where I really learned how to tell stories through comics, you know. 
and I just I just feel very lucky that I had that experience. It sounds like a good group of folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all amazing, amazing cartoonists. And really different, too, from each other. Now, I'm not going to talk about Eternal Smile much, because like I said, you and Derek were on, um, and folks should listen to that interview. It's a lot of fun. Um, but more recently, you did the Prime Baby, uh, which was originally serialized in the New York Times Sunday Funny Pages. Um, when you did that, were you looking at what other people had done in that series? Because previously, I think uh, Dan Klaus, Chris Ware, Seth had all done work for it. And Jason. Yeah, I, I looked at um, Jason's, that, the, the Norwegian artist. I looked at his. I read his, and I think I read uh, Megan Kelso's. I didn't read all of them. Especially, yeah, I mean, I thought like if I, if, I, if I read all of them, I would just feel too intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> so I just read a couple to see what they what they were like. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, the, I mean the the group of people that they 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 asked for just I mean, it's hard act to follow. Yeah, nobody wants to follow Dan Klaus <laughs> or Jason or Megan Kelso. Nobody wants to follow those people. But so I just I'd read enough to to see what it was all about, and then I did it. It was fun. Yeah, well, the fact that they ended it, yeah. I was the last person. Aww. They told me it wasn't my fault, but <laughs> who knows? <laughs> One yeah. thing I really appreciate your book, like all the other ones were very serious, um, you know, dry, uh, harsh stories. Um, not harsh, I guess, but very serious. And yours was just pure fun candy, I kind of felt like. And um, I wonder if you like knew that the other stuff was pretty serious and wanted to do something. I did. I did. I just, I, I can't. I mean, I can't compete on that plane, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I did try. I did make an active choice to try to do something different because I didn't want. Yeah, I didn't want to compete on the same plane as Dan Klaus, you know, or Jason. Or J- <laughs> yeah. Uh, when you were young. Um, did you kind of have the same obsessions, fantasies as uh, the young protagonist in Prime Baby? Were you like focused on? You know, uh, yeah, I I wasn't. I don't think I ever wanted to rule the world. It just seemed like too much work to me. <laughs> but then at the same time, Derek tells me that he thinks out of all the comics I've done, that comic is the most like me. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. <laughs> I that, the Prime Baby. Um, is a you know it's a story about this third grader who gets his baby sister that he's very jealous of, and then he tries to prove to his parents that this this new sister of his is actually an alien, and that was actually inspired by what I was seeing at home. So when I when I started Prime Baby, I had just had a second child, and my first child started to act jealous towards her. You know, I, I have a, a seven year old boy now and a four year old daughter. But at the time she was just born, my daughter was just born. So I was inspired by that. You know, I could, I could see how sibling rivalry was a real de- can be a real deep issue within a family structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but my son is not evil like Thaddeus is in the book. <laughs> I'm not. I, yeah, I'm not totally sure where that came from. I'm not totally sure where that came from. But the, there was a reviewer that um, compared the book to um, Calvin and Hobbes. And I think you know. First of all, that's really flattering, <laughs> and that might be that might be true too. Maybe some of that was in my subconscious as I was writing it. 
I don't know if he's necessarily evil as, uh, I know, he seems re uh, quite resolved at the end to not be so evil. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the, the book itself is, I, I tried to make it about how the main character learns to open himself at least a little bit to human relationship. Oh, one of the big things for you, for your book, is you've really um, gotten a lot of acceptance among the uh, the librarians in that kind of avenue, and I'm wondering what that experience has been like with librarians, and how do you feel like that's important for for work getting out there? Yeah, librarians. I I, I never knew, first of all, that librarians are so powerful. They're an amazingly powerful and important uh, part of the book industry. You know, and, and and I think before the comic book industry and the book industry started merging, a lot of us in comics just didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and and we I don't think we paid librarians their due. Uh, I I just think you know the acceptance of. Um, graphic novels into the greater American culture. A lot of that is driven by librarians. Uh, and um, and I, I just think that we really have to use them as a resource. I, I personally think that a huge portion of my career is built on the backs of librarians. You know, I, I think uh, American-born Chinese, a lot of the acceptance that American-born Chinese has gotten in schools and in other institutions has come from librarians talking about it, and and even from my other books as well. The, mm -hmm. the reason why, it, uh, you know, they have a readership of any kind, a lot of that is due to librarians. Now for yourself, um, what are some things you've done to kind of get involved with that community? Well, I, I I think I I don't know if I'm not an awesome promoter of my own stuff. I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to get better, but I'm not I'm not super awesome. I really think that a lot of the credit has to go to First Second. So First Second Books is the publisher of all of my comics from American Born Chinese on, and um, they're very they're a very small publisher in a very large corporation. First Second is part of Macmillan. Mm -hmm. I'm not totally sure how this culture got formed, the first second culture got formed, but education and li libraries are a huge part of um, first second's culture. You know, they they um, they have a lot of close contacts within the library world, and they have a lot of close contacts within the education world. So I really think they did a great job getting American-born Chinese into the hands of the right people, mm -hmm. and that's kind of how that all got started. I also think it didn't hurt that I was a teacher myself, you know, <laughs> that I was involved in education myself. I don't think, I don't, I think that was probably an asset as well. But I, I think a lot of that credit really goes to, to First Second. First Second was the, you know, they, they invited me out to an American Library Association conference. They were the ones that, mm -hmm. that brought me there. And uh, I got to tell you, when you get a whole bunch of librarians together and you give them beer, it's just crazy. <laughs> 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 that whole, you know, that whole being quiet in the library thing is just completely out the window. <laughs> it's awesome. If you've never been to an ALA, you should try to go. <laughs> I'm on it. There we go. I would love to. It's the the reason I'm asking is uh, from my own viewpoint, just kind of watching the direction of where things are going and where I see like renewable success 
um, outside of comic stores, it really seems to be this kind of avenue. And it's just not something that a lot of, kind of, I guess, mainstream comic really jumping onto yet. So Yeah, there definitely lost. is. I mean, every pretty much every library now that I go into has a graphic novel section. They no longer, you know, keep graphic novels in the ghetto of the 741 in... Uh, in nonfiction, a lot of, a lot of them will separate it, and it'll be you know, and, and some of the really good libraries will have multiple comic book sections. They'll have a graphic novels for teens, a graphic novels for kids, and a graphic novels for adults. So things are definitely moving in that direction. I also think you know I, I do see more and more mainstream superhero comics in, in those sections as well. Mm-hmm. Now your latest book. Uh, level up a collaboration with Tim Pham. Um, it almost feels like a bit of an extension of American Born Chinese in some ways. Yeah, it. it uh, what, one of the things that I didn't deal with in American Born Chinese was a relationship between uh, the immigrant kid and his or her parents. So that's really what. Um, that's really what level up is. It it has much more of a focus on that particular relationship. So in a lot of ways, I guess you could see it as a, as a thematic continuation of American-born Chinese. What does that expectation mean for those that haven't read it and don't really understand? Well, I, I mean, uh, I think, I think American, or, uh, Level Up has, has been talked about as an Asian-American book, but I really think that it happens, that sort of expectation happens all over the place. It seems especially pronounced with immigrant families you know, regardless of where the parents immigrated from. But it's just this idea that your parents have really worked hard for you to make your life better, and they basically just don't want you to F it up. (laughs) (laughs) They want you to make, yeah, they want you to make good choices to make sure you can eat for the rest of your life, and uh, and they don't want you to screw things up. So so immigrants' parents, or immigrants' kids, I think, um, feel that feel that pressure a little bit more acutely because um, oftentimes the immigrants themselves went through a lot of hardship to get themselves out of poverty and to provide their kids with the opportunities that they that they have. Also seems like a commentary on uh, getting over video games. Were you strongly obsessed with video games at a certain point? I, w- I definitely wasn't obsessed, but I, I think I was pretty typical of anybody around my age, any any geek around my age. It definitely you know? resonated with me. Oh, great. <laughs> That's great to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think anyone around my age, we, we, we grew up when video games were growing up. You know, we, we uh, all those classic games like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong and Cubert were a huge part of our childhood. Which, uh, which Street Fighter II character did you use? I'm sorry? Which Street Fighter 2 character did you use? I was into Chun-Li because I could never get the specials down on anybody else. Chun-Li's was easiest, right? You could just you just yeah. hit a button really fast and then the special would happen. <laughs> so, yeah, Street Fighter was always embarrassing for me to play because I was never good at it. And that was one of the ones where you're, you're you know, especially in the, in the days of the arcade, your defeat was public. Your humiliation was public. It was almost a display of manhood, of, of how yes, good you were with, exactly, uh, with exactly. Kenner Ryu. Exactly. I, and I, and I, was, I was one of the guys, you know how, like, um, 
a lot of times when you're playing that game, after you get beat by, in the first round, if you got beat really, really soundly, the other guy would trade places with you just so you could play a little bit longer. Yeah. I was always that dude. People were always trading places with me just to be nice. Aww. To me. <laughs> I was all about the uh, the M Bison. I I, I quit. Oh enjoyed. yeah, that's a more that's a harder uh, that's a harder character to play. I I could never do You're well. You're much more hardcore. I I am. I could never do well with Kinnerayu though, because I could never figure out how to do the uppercut. Still can't. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for those that did not grow up with. Uh, with Street Fighter 2. Um, what was it like working with uh, Tian on this? Uh, it was um, both frustrating and rewarding. Probably more on the frustrating side for most of the time. He and I did just very, very different artists, you know? Uh, he's... I, I, like, I like figuring things out before I start. Like, for instance, Word Balloons. Word Balloons was one of our biggest fights all the way through. I like measuring out a word balloon to make sure all the words can fit. Mm-hmm. Whereas he likes to just draw it and kind of hope that it'll all fit. You know? And, <laughs> uh, and, and with his own comics, when, when the words don't fit, he just cuts out words. But that made me really mad. Because <laughs> I felt like, I felt like, dude, I, I, spent, I spent some time figuring out those words. You can't just cut out words. So, so we we had a lot of fights about that, but but at the same time, I I think you know when he's when he's on, he's really on. Mm-hmm. There there are some pages in, in Level Up that are just gorgeous, uh, and um, and he definitely has this, like his art can have this sort of carefree charisma. Yeah. Just because just just because of the way he is. So in that way, it was very rewarding. It's it's always nice to see your ideas interpreted through somebody else's pen. Well, how does that affect how you're doing the story when you know um, it'll look a certain way? Because, I mean, it's, he's definitely got his own kind of idiosyncratic style in a way, where with Derek is yeah, working towards... Yeah, Derek is much more methodical. I feel like Derek... I mean, Derek draws way better than me, but in terms of how we approach comics, I'm much closer to Derek than mm-hmm. I am to Tin. You know, Derek's very methodical, and I tend to be more on the methodical side. I'm not as methodical as Derek, but I tend to be more on the methodical side. Whereas Tin just kind of goes, you know, he he just kind of whatever comes out comes out, and 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 that's about it. So in terms of the writing, um, I I wrote Level Up as uh, as thumbnails, so I gave him a set of thumbnails, and that was sort of my way of ensuring that he at least visually knows what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think I would trust him to read a script. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think I would trust him to like if I if I had to go through each panel and describe the composition, I don't trust that he would read all of those descriptions all the way through, and the end comic would just look completely different from what I had in mind. And for for those that want to know more about Tin Fam, uh, you can listen to the Comics Claptrap, uh, another right. comics podcast. Um, which you have appeared on. I think you're one of their first yes. guests, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. We just, I mean, we just spent the whole episode yelling at each other, <laughs> Tin and I. <laughs> that's kind of our relationship. We're, it's just, you know, he and I just yell at each other a lot, and that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> I've really got to have him on. <laughs> yeah, you gotta, you gotta. I, I, I kept saying, why don't you guys have me on? I have a book out. And... 
I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, how's the uh, Boxer Rebellion book going? It's going well. It's going really well. I, it's it, the whole project is two volumes. The very first volume um, has the boxers as the main characters, and then the second volume has their victims as the main characters. So all the good guys in one one side uh, in one volume will be the bad guys in the other, and vice versa. And I have just finished the first volume. Not just. I finished the first volume a few months ago. And Lark Tien, um, who colored American War Chinese, is also coloring it, okay. the, the, the boxer's book. So um, she is wrapping up the coloring right now. So the whole thing should be done very, very soon. I'm not sure when First Second is going to put it out yet. I think they're waiting until I get a little further along the second volume mm-hmm. before they put the first one out. They seem very methodical that way as far as their release schedule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, a lot of a lot of that comes from Mark's personality. You know, Mark Mark Siegel is the is the head editor there. Mm-hmm. And he's the one that started the imprint. So I feel like the entire line is sort of imbued with his way of doing things and his aesthetic. And because he's such a have you seen his his cartoons? His yeah, comics? the Sailor Twain. Yeah, Sailor Twain. He's an amazing cartoonist. So mm-hmm. a lot of that comes through. I'm I'm looking forward to when it's out in print so I can read it. I'm not very good with web comics. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, I I don't mind reading comics on my iPhone or or like an iPad, but for some reason when it's on a laptop, I just don't like it as much. Different devices. Um, I'm curious. You made a reference to good guys and bad guys. How do you resolve? Do you have a set good guys or bad guys in mind, or are you kind of leaving it open for readers to kind of work it out themselves? Oh, for um, for the boxer for the, rebellion, for the boxers and saints. Um, I, I, I mean, the reason why I'm doing two volumes is because I can't resolve it. Yeah, I, I just don't. I think it's, I think it's a very, very messy and ugly historical incident, and I think it's very difficult to actually pick out real good guys and bad guys in that. Among all of the players, it's very difficult to say, oh, this person is good and this person is bad. Or, or maybe not person, but this group of people is good and this group of people are bad. Maybe a quick uh, highlight of what the actual thing was for folks that did not share sure. Chinese history. Sure. So, so the, the Boxer Rebellion was, a, was basically a war that happened in the year 1900. And a lot of people consider it uh, a precursor to the World Wars because of the number of... Uh, nations that were involved in the Boxer Rebellion. So in, in, in the late 1800s, the Chinese government had gotten really weak, and a lot of European powers went into China and established concessions on Chinese land. So this was basically where they would um, take pieces of cities or, or neighborhoods and have complete control over them. Basically, like the like you know, France had a concession, and that concession was basically like a piece of France in the in the middle of China. Mm-hmm. You, if you see maps, it looks very it looks like Europe in China. Yes, exactly, exactly, and and, and almost every I mean, pretty much every major European power, and Japan and and America all had concessions in China. So uh, these um, these teenage boys, poor, uneducated illiterate teenage boys in the, in the Chinese countryside um, saw this happening and and they were really angry about it. They felt like it was an affront to them as, as Chinese people. Uh, so they developed this mystical ritual where um, they would, you know, perform all of these 
different moves and, and breathe in a certain way. And they believe that when they perform this ritual, they would be possessed by um, these Chinese gods of the opera. So at the time, you know, they didn't have TV or anything. So the pop culture that these boys were familiar with came from these traveling operas that would go from one village to the next, performing stories about Chinese gods and ancient Chinese heroes. So these, these boxers, these boys, believe that when they did these rituals, those heroes and those gods would possess them, and they would be granted supernatural powers that they could use to, to go and fight the, the, the white men. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the rebellion itself was these boys being possessed by the gods, running through the countryside, killing off um, European merchants and, and soldiers and, uh, and, and missionaries and Chinese Christians as well. And they they eventually made it all the way to the capital city, and there they had like this final showdown with the European powers, and the European powers ended up winning. But um, but the whole thing is just it's it's a little bit crazy. The the way I got um, introduced to the Boss Rebellion was um, about ten years ago, uh, a whole bunch of. Chinese saints were canonized within the Catholic Church for the first time. So naturally, the church that I grew up in had this huge celebration for it, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I started looking into the lives of a lot of these people that were canonized. It turns out that a lot of them were martyred during the Boxer Rebellion. Now, when they were canonized, the Chinese government actually protested the canonization because they felt that the Catholic Church was honoring a whole bunch of traitors to China, you know, traitors to their own people. So there's this this tension between between China and the Catholic Church at the time. Mm-hmm. And I felt like um, the more I looked into that incident, the less clear it became to me who's who was the good guy and who was the bad guy. And, and I also felt like this tension that was there um, was really representative of attention that a lot of um, Asian Americans in general, and maybe Asian American Christians in particular, feel between East and West. Yeah. Um, totally just got wrapped up in what you were saying. <laughs> um, so that book you've been working on for quite some time, how is yeah, your, yeah. How has your knowledge changed um, about the issue while research, like how, what it has come to light for you? Um, I, I mean, I, I did a lot of, uh, yeah, it's, I'm definitely not very good at research, but this is the most research intensive project that I've ever worked on. I um, had the privilege of going to this Jesuit archive in France. Oh, wow. Yeah, where they, they had a lot of um, they had a lot of French documents, which I couldn't read <laughs> from from the time period. But they also had this huge wall of photographs from that era. You know, the the camera had had just been invented at the time, and a lot of those photographs were just amazingly brutal. I, I was a little bit shocked, and and it showed brut- brutality on all sides. You know, yeah. they had um, beheadings of boxers by European soldiers. Um, and uh, and that is just, it's a little bit mind-blowing that they were able to do that because it's not like those cameras back then were point and click. You know, you had to set them up and you had to position it and, you, and there was just a lot of preparation before you could take the, the picture. So it meant they did all of this preparation just to capture a beheading where the head was actually in midair. 
you know wow uh so they had they had photos like that they also had photos of um chinese people torturing chinese christians just really really bloody brutal imagery mm -hmm. of, of that kind of stuff happening um it, it was uh i mean i guess i guess that's it really brought <laughs> to light the it brought to light how how ugly it is yeah how ugly it was at the, at the time I, I i mean i think um I don't know. I think I think that maybe because as modern people were much more separated from blood than than people a hundred or two hundred years ago were, mm -hmm. it's even more shocking to us. But it, it, it's just it was so brutal. Does that um, is that something? Because normally your work is not violent. It is not violent comics. Is that something you're having a struggle with resolving how you approach that in your work? Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, this is definitely the bloodiest book that I've done. There's, there are, you know, there are beheadings and there's, there's a lot of swords going into people and, and that sort of thing. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a little rough, it's a little rough seeing it colored. <laughs> I felt like when I was drawing it in black and white, it was, uh, it seemed alright to me, but after a lot of colors it, it's just, uh, like I flipped through some of her colors the other day, and they were, they were pretty shocking. <laughs> it was like, wow, I drew that. I, I still try to keep it. You know, I have a pretty cartoony style, so because because of that, I'm hoping that the cartooniness mitigates some of the the violence. But there's just no way of talking about that particular incident without getting into blood. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm very excited about it, as I've said before, and I think it's a fascinating topic to cover that not a lot of people know about. Well, thanks. And, Thank and you. Still, I'm looking uh, forward to the release. Too. I think it still resonates in kind of understanding that east-west divide, where you kind of China is still very separate, and it still, a lot of ways, is responding to what happened then um, with the European encroachment. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's a yeah. It's an important topic. So yeah. Um, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today, Gene. Oh, no problem.